Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. With me today are Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby. Wayne is the founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. You can read their complete bios on our website. Today the topic is private game farms. Private game farms keep deer behind big fences, slaughter them for meat or velvet, and invite fee-paying hunters to shoot some of the quarry in a guaranteed kill arrangement. This is from Wayne's most recent blog on animalwellnessaction.org. He goes on to say it's about as sporting as shooting a deer in a pen in a zoo. The deer are often bred with antlers so big and heavy that they can't raise their heads. But this startlingly large industry, with perhaps 4,000 enterprises in the United States, has been doing something else that's not only horrible for the animals involved, but it's also potentially lethal to humans as well. And that is driving the spread of chronic wasting disease throughout the United States. CWD, as it's shorthanded, is a brain-destroying order, much like mad cow disease that turns the brains of deer, elk, and moose into something akin to Swiss cheese. It's a threat to captive deer and to wild ones, and maybe also to the people who consume the meat after the hunt is complete. Wondering which animal industry is poised to spawn the next animal or human health epidemic like COVID-19? Well, says Wayne, here's one candidate for the list of plagues in progress. That is the focus of our show today, and I want to go straight to Wayne. Wayne, certainly COVID-19, these zoonotic diseases are on everyone's mind. Tell us about CWD. How long have we known about it, and where is it today? Well, as you said, Joe, and good morning to you, the world has many different diseases that have plagued animals and humans throughout our our history and our our human experience. Uh, This is a relatively new one. Uh, this really, you know, came on the scene gangbusters as mad cow disease about 20 years ago when there were deaths um, from people dying of the human variant called crutchfield Jakob disease. Uh, we saw people, you know, really in, uh, affected in terms of their mobility and all other, all other aspects of their behavior until they died from this disease. And it was thought that it was transmitted by eating uh, parts of cows. Uh, and the cows had been infected perhaps by feeding cows to cows. Uh, cows are herbivores, uh, but in the feed industry, they were putting all sorts of things into the mix, including uh, parts of other animals. And it was thought that that was a contributing factor to the onset of this uh, brain-wasting disease, which is not a virus, uh, it's not a bacteria, it's a prion. And uh, they are considered virtually indestructible and stay in the environment there is a, an equivalent called scrapie in sheep that is a brain-wasting disorder. And the variant for cervids, deer, elk, and moose, is chronic wasting disease. And it was discovered first in Colorado in the 1960s. And then in recent decades, and especially in the last 15 years, it has spread widely throughout the United States. And it's been identified um, as starting in deer game farms and then infecting wild deer who behaviorally interact 
with the captive deer. This is why I flagged it uh, that time and time again, these game farms are really spawning chronic wasting disease. And Minnesota is the latest outbreak. Wisconsin has had it most severely. But as I said, it's affected two dozen states. It is a threat to the hunting industry. It's a threat to the wildlife watching industry. And it's a threat to human health, particularly for the people who are consuming uh, wild game. Right. And I, I believe in your column, too, you mentioned that this does not only reside in the animals. It, it can also go into uh, the land itself, into other, other areas where it could potentially reach humans. Uh, did I read that correct? Yes. I mean, a virus or bacteria, you know, especially exposed to sun or certain, you know, climate conditions uh, goes away. But the prion is, is, is pretty much there and sticks around. And that makes it, you know, particularly menacing one. Now, the transmissibility is much more limited, right? If you have a respiratory contagion, you know, coughing or, um, you know, touching something and someone touches it, this is much more difficult to transmit. It seems that it, it must be consumed, but the durability of the infective agent uh, is one distinguishing characteristic of it. Okay. Uh, our guest is internationally acclaimed writer Ted Williams. He is an avid angler who devotes his craft to fish and wildlife conservation issues. The author of several books, he is a longtime contributor to Mother Jones and Audubon Magazine and writes the monthly recovery column for the Nature Conservancy's Cool Green Science. Uh, he was also conservation editor for Fly Rod and Reel Magazine for three decades. Forbes has called him a national treasure and the modern age equivalent of Rachel Carson for sportsmen. So, uh, Ted, thank you so much for being with us today. It's good to be with you. Thank you. And and I know you have a strong uh, background in outdoor sports, sports involving uh, wildlife. What is your estimation of chronic wasting disease and, and where are you seeing this malady going forward? Well, it's, it is a nightmare, as Wayne said, and, and uh, it's rampant now in Canada and the U.S. Uh, the Canadians gut it from us, apparently, um, but it's not the only disease. Game farms have been spreading uh, bovine tuberculosis, uh, brucellosis, and, and uh, several other diseases. When uh, Alberta had to go up in, uh, with helicopters and shoot 10,000 wild deer along the border with Saskatchewan because of game farms in Saskatchewan spreading chronic wasting disease uh, among wild deer, whitetails and mule deer, and elk. Another problem is apparently chronic wasting disease is spread by deer urine. And there's a big market in deer urine when it's sold, uh, shipped around North America in 55-gallon drums uh, produced in game farms. Hunters uh, uh, anoint their clothes with it, and it, it conceals their smell and attracts deer. Apparently, chronic wasting disease is spread by deer urine, but definitely they know that other diseases are spread by it, including uh, TB and uh, uh, other diseases. Uh. So, Ted, you were talking about game farms, and, uh, and of course, that's a huge part of Wayne's blog about CWD. Uh, talk about these, these game farms. How do they operate? Uh, so not only are they marketing uh, apparently urine from the deer inside the farms, uh, but, of course, they also sell the canned hunt. What, what's your assessment as a sportsman of these facilities? Well, it's not hunting. And, and 
ethical hunters are trying to shut them down. They've had some success. Canned hunts have been banned in 20 states. Once one group in Montana that was successful is uh, called Mad Cow. That stands for Montana Against the Domestication and Commercialization of Wildlife. And their shibboleth is real hunters don't shoot pets. Unfortunately, game farms are still uh, very popular, more than ever. There's at least 15,000 in the U.S. And they really are giving uh, hunters a, a bad name. Audubon Magazine assigned me several pieces on uh, game farms. And you'd ask yourself, why would Audubon be interested in game farm hunting? Uh, the answer is that if these make-believe hunting outfits replace real hunting uh, of wild ungulates, wildlife is going to take a major hit. For instance, more than uh, 20 wild deer per square mile creates a, a complete loss of Ceronian warblers, yellow-billed cuckoos, indigo bunnies, eastern wood peewees, and least flycatchers. At 64 uh, deer per square mile, you lose your eastern phoebes and even robins. But it's not only birds of the nest on or close to the ground that are being wiped out by overabundant deer, because deer remove saplings, even mid-canopy nesters like peewees, tanagers, and grosbeaks are in serious decline. We have a huge overpopulation of deer, white-tailed deer in the east, because we've depleted all the natural the obligate predators. Uh, so nothing is controlling them, and hunters really aren't even controlling them themselves, but they're doing some good. Without hunting of deer, the damage would be even worse. Gotcha. Uh, how much uh, do, well, I, I almost used the word sportsman, but I think I'll editorialize myself and not use the word sportsman, but how much do customers pay to go to one of these deer farms and shoot a deer. What, what, what's the cost on, on that? There's a huge uh, variation, but it can be up to $10,000, $15,000, depending on the, on the facility. And another big operation of these game farms is, is selling the semen of these grotesquely mutant deer with huge antlers. Some of them have been uh, you know, sold for $50,000 just for a, a straw of, of semen. And when these uh, mutant deer become old and decrepit and, and are waning of semen, then they're sold as shooter bucks to game farms. Mm -hmm. On uh, Wayne's blog, because uh, on that, through the political animal page, there's a photograph of some of this grotesquerie uh, in terms of the the uh, malformed, is the way I would describe it, antlers. Uh, so if someone wants to see that, they can go to your blog for that. Yeah, and I mean, I do think that this selective breeding, and Ted has really drawn this issue out in his writings, that the antlers are so heavy that the animals have difficulty, you know, keeping their, their heads up. And it's a tremendous cost in terms of the quality of life for the animal when you're, you're carrying this around on, on your head. And, you know, you, you think, oh, my God, well, how do these people do it? Well, I mean, look at what we've done to dairy cows in the United States. I mean, dairy cows on industrial facilities are, as individuals, producing 27,000 pounds of milk a year. One cow is producing 27,000 pounds of milk. I mean, we have re-engineered and reformed these animals to, to suit our commercial designs for them at great expense to the animals. That's why many of these dairy cows have to be slaughtered at three, four, or five, even though, you know, a normal, healthy, non-genetically manipulated cow uh, manipulated through selective breeding, that is, 
uh, you know, can live 15 years, but they, they're, they're living a third of that uh, because, because of this malformation that, that we've created. And that's what Ted has pointed out is going on in these, on these deer farms. And then someone can shoot one of these animals, mount this, <laughs> mount this head in this rack, and then apparently concoct some story you know, about, about this and why people are so consumed with size is a mystifying phenomenon to me. And I I don't know, Ted may have some theories on that issue. Ted, I never thought I'd ask this question on, on the political animal, but why does size matter? I don't know. Uh, but some people, uh, you know, my horns are bigger than your horns and that's what drives a lot of these, uh, game farms. Some of the uh, hunting groups are, are really down on, on game farms. One group uh, that promotes them is uh, the Safari Club International. Their record book, when last time I looked at it, they had 833 uh, canned hunt entries. Ted Nugent, the rock music star, is a uh, big member uh, of the Safari Club, and uh, he runs a canned hunt operation in Michigan. And he's uh, been fined a few times for wildlife violations. Uh, you know, another issue that needs to be discussed by ethical hunters and and animal welfare uh, advocates is game farms that cater to photographers. And these cannot be separated from game farms that cater to, to shooters because the animals are lead miserable lives. Um, I went to one undercover, Triple D, in Montana. They have these wolves that are kept in the dark enclosure. And for maybe 45 minutes a day, several of the wolves are taken out and they're trained to, to run around uh, an enclosure and, and look fierce. And they're given a liver treat. So they when, they're, when they uh, growl and snarl, they... One of them ran around, and when, he, when we got done, it rolled on its back and wanted a belly run. And I tried to get into a, a place called the uh, Animals of Montana. Uh, they had just euthanized seven wolves because they were, quote, acting dangerously. In other words, they were acting wolf-like. When some of these animals at these farms get old, then they are sold to uh, game farms to be shot. The photographers, the, the legitimate ethical wildlife photographers, are very down in these places. And there's a, there's a website now called No More Game Farms. That's available on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I, I had never heard of game farms where captive animals were used for photography, uh, nor would have imagined that their lives would have would have been that brutish. That's interesting news to me. It's Wayne, and you know this is this is something that another uh, outdoor writer, whom Ted uh, Ted Williams knows, Ted Carasotti, has written about nature fakery. That this is basically you know fake photography. That you're you're taking pictures and video of captive animals, and you're kind of marketing it as you know captured in the wild. And this is what got Marty Stauffer. Um, in in trouble some years ago, Ted. I, I'm sure you you remember that his Wild America series, you know, was kind of represented as an in nature experience, and you know the viewer was taken into the wilds when it was really a bunch of captive animals in a stage setting. <laughs> right, Mark Perkins was was just as bad, if not worse. And even the early Disney movies were were terrible. Uh, Disney has bootstrapped itself. And their their wildlife movies are legitimate and honest now, but you can still buy uh, DVDs of a white wilderness. Uh, that's a movie in which uh, lemmings 
Lemmings do not commit mass suicide. That's a, a myth, like hummingbirds hitching rides on geese. But uh, Disney believed it, and they paid kids in Churchill, Manitoba, to go out and catch lemmings, and they flung them off with a uh, ski throw into the into the sea. And then they <laughs> they had uh, the baby polar bears that they rolled down a snowbank, uh, down a hill. And this is what they used to do. But at least Disney has come a long way. But the legitimate ethical wildlife photographers, it's, it's not fair to them because anybody can go out for a day and rent a snow leopard and get these close-up, beautifully framed photos and sell them to calendars and magazines. And of course, most of the magazines don't care where they came from. Ted, Ted, you, you're, you're rocking my world here. For I got to go back to something. I grew up with Marlon Perkins and, and the whole Mutual of Omaha thing. You're, you're telling me that that wasn't legit? That was even worse than Marty Stouffer. You would have bobcats and otters fighting in the middle of the day. They were all tame, you know, and, and kept in bad conditions. That's how it used to be. I mean, most of the nature shows these days aren't that bad. It's the still photos that are uh, the problem with these game farms. We've got these thousands of deer farms, and then on top of that, we have other game farming operations and canned hunting facilities. You know, in Texas, they have a wide range of species that are offered up, exotic species. Sometimes they escape and get introduced into the United States uh, as an exotic species with the range of effects that introduced species have. So you're talking about thousands and thousands of operations. Ted put 15,000 as a number if you kind of cluster them together. I mean, this is one of the least known problems in American wildlife management. And the fact that the state fish and wildlife agencies tolerate it, the state agriculture departments tolerate it, we compensate these deer ranchers when they create a chronic wasting disease outbreak. The federal government goes in and kills all their animals and then gives them money for them which enables them to open up a new operation. One reason I wrote about this in The Political Animal is that we understand a lot more now than we did some time ago about puppy mills and factory farms and trophy hunting of threatened and endangered species, but we don't really understand what's going on with this problem uh, from a humane perspective, from a conservation perspective, from a disease transmission perspective, and that's why I wrote about it. And I, I would really be interested in Marty's take on this because, you know, he grew up in a, in a state and a region, you know, where hunting is, is part of the lifeblood of so many of the people. Yeah, Marty, um, share your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, thank you, Joe. Uh, this has been very informative, and thanks, Ted, for being here today. Such a great podcast. You know, I grew up in South Alabama, and my stepfather was a big hunter. My best friend to this day is an avid deer hunter. And I never understood quite why they liked going out into the woods, not only to kill a deer, but just to sit in a tree stand for hours upon hours, uh, many days of the year. And I think there's, to many hunters, some therapeutic value in that of being out in nature and having that time outdoors. But we had a pretty decent-sized white-tailed deer in the area. I know the, the bow season there um, runs from October to February, and then the gun season runs from late November to February of each year. But if you were to see a, a buck, a deer, that um, looked something like one of these on these deer farms, it would be absolutely unheard of, a very rare occasion monster buck, they would call them. And so... 
um, you know, this, this seems to be, uh, like many other exploitations of animals, uh, a freak show, uh, is the best way I would, I would put it. And I know all of the people that, um, I've known my entire life and actually both of my grandfathers were avid deer hunters too, wouldn't, um, approve and support this type of hunting. So I think that's something that, uh, real sportsmen recognize is almost a way of cheating um, or it's an ego fix for their own gratification to go out and, and kill something that they can just hang on a wall that looks like this and probably, as Wayne said earlier, come up with some story that goes with it, um, you know, that makes it seem uh, much greater to other folks than it really is that they just, you know, went out on a canned hunt. You know, the area in Alabama, there's a area called the Black Belt region around Demopolis and Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where there have been deer that have been sighted that are really huge deer and swampy type areas, uh, well hidden and found on rare occasion. But I think for many of hunt the hunters out there, that's the sport of it is, is finding those rare finds. And I know many of them that have seen them and couldn't even bring themselves to pull the trigger and ended up taking photographs of the deer instead of killing it. You know, also in the time that I lived in Tennessee, the eastern part of the state, which is very mountainous near Gatlinburg and Knoxville has an area called Cades Cove that I'm sure Ted's probably heard of and you both may have as well, where there are these monster bucks and you can drive through and uh, see the the deer that are all over the place in that area and, and many monster bucks as they would be defined um, by the photos we've seen. And there's no hunting. There are many, many photographers that go out and find these deer and seek them. And I always found that something that was very enjoyable to drive through Cade's Cove and take photographs of the deer and see how beautiful they were. And, and that entire area has been untouched by hunters for many years, I believe. And that's allowed those deer to grow and become what they have over a long period of time. And Marty, you're kind of always our go-to guy for legislative issues. Uh, is there anything happening that you know of on any legislative front regarding the increased regulation of these farms, either because of what they represent in terms of lack of of, of fairness uh, for the animals or certainly for the spread of chronic wasting disease? I don't know of anything currently, Joe. Wayne might have some more insight there. I believe in the past there have been bills introduced, but didn't really go anywhere, Wayne. Yeah, there's been some anti-canned hunting legislation in, in Congress that's mainly for non-native species, and that is really aimed at the thousands of places that, you know, have African antelope and, and other large hooved animals. Texas and a couple other states did allow the shooting of tigers and lions some years ago, but that was banned, you know, nearly 20 years ago. And there have been efforts uh, very limited at the state level to address game farms. I mean, the most noteworthy was the one that Ted mentioned earlier. There was a ballot measure in the year 2000 that was led by hunters, but supported by animal advocates that pretty narrowly passed in Montana to ban canned hunting and, and to ban game farms. But, you know, I'm astonished that a place like Wisconsin, you know, where, you know, they closed the schools on the opening day of deer hunting, uh, places like Minnesota, that are having these outbreaks that are hurting wild deer populations, you know, causing suffering for those animals, but also reducing the potential opportunities for hunters to have a, a real in the wild hunting experience 
And then because many of these animals may have the disease and be asymptomatic, of course, you know, hunters are not observing the behavior of these animals for, you know, minutes or hours. They shoot an animal. They don't know if they're, if they're killing and then consuming an infected animal. I do think it's a threat uh, for hunting families to consume these, these animals to a degree. There have been a couple of studies out of North Dakota that have raised questions about this. And because there are so many deer in the wild and there's so much hunting, deer meat is sometimes given to, to food kitchens and the like. So you're kind of spreading the potential risk. And, you know, it may be that you have to consume some of the spinal cord material or other parts of the body that are infected, you know, by the prion. But it seems to be just an unnecessary risk. And it's kind of like the wet markets in China that have spawned the COVID-19 crisis. Why are we doing this? We don't need to do this. People don't need to eat pangolins and civet cats. We have domesticated animals. We have a wide range of plant products that we can consume. And when it comes to hunting, we have the, the most abundant deer populations that we've probably ever had in the United States. Uh, because, you know, we've wiped out predators and we've created ideal conditions for deer by creating so much edge habitat. We don't need this. I mean, that's what astonishes me. We're doing this with deer game farms at a time when we have the highest wild deer populations ever. There's just no need for it. Absolutely. The startling thing is that uh, while 20 states have banned and hunting, that means that 30 uh, still allow it. The ones that have banned it are Alabama, Arizona, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Mississippi, Montana, Nevada, North Carolina, Oregon, Rhode Island, Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. I'm not sure if these states still allow game farms, but they have banned can't hunt. Well, they do it, Ted, to different degrees, right? It, you know, like Texas's law basically just bans the shooting of, of big cats in right. in fenced enclosures in a commercial fee arrangement but they have a, a huge amount of hooved animals that are offered up you know dozens and dozens of species you can literally look at a menu and you might pay eight thousand dollars for an eland or ten thousand dollars for a black buck antelope what, whatever the number is it's a price list and I, i'm quite sure that they're allowing the shooting of the native species in almost all of those states montana is really the exception in forbidding shooting of a native species um, in the form of white-tailed deer or, you know, maybe mule deer. I think it's mainly white-tails that have been raised. And fallow deer are an exotic species, but most of those prohibitions on canned hunts don't even cover the exotic deer species. Another point is that when these game farm deer escape, which they always do, they deer carry brainworm, and, and deer evolved with brainworms. And it, it really doesn't affect them. But, but other ungulates that did not evolve a brain worm, a moose, elk, caribou, pronghorn, for example, get them and, and die. So it's a, it's a huge problem when these exotic pathogens and parasites are, are spread to, throughout the environment. I mean, what, one of the things, uh, Joe and Ted and Marty, is that, you know, this is really a move by the wildlife industry to adopt an agricultural practice. I mean, they are basically treating wildlife like an agricultural commodity. And that is really at odds with the foundational standards of 20th century wildlife management, which was a response to the market killing that liquidated, you know, so many of the large 
mammals um, in the 19th century. We were killing these animals commercially for their hides, for their tongues, for meat and other purposes, and you know, brought many of them to near extinction. The wildlife management profession of the 20th century was a reaction to that and allowed for public hunting, uh, personal utilization of the carcass for consumption. But there was not supposed to be the commercialization of the products. And I think we've inconsistently, the states have inconsistently applied the standard with commercial trapping as a gross violation of that standard where we're killing animals for their pelts and much of the trapping pressure is dictated by the value of the pelt price. But the game farms really are kind of both feet into the agricultural model of wildlife production. And we get these disease issues when you concentrate animals and put them in places they shouldn't be. And then you have all the ethical issues and, uh, as Ted talked about, kind of the draining of resources from the conventional wildlife management model, which could really sap the, the funding streams that have traditionally supported uh, state fish and wildlife agencies. So I think it's a, it's a much bigger threat. It's an unknown threat. And, Joe, when you asked Marty and me about what's going on legislatively, it's, there's shockingly little. And one reason I think that there's little is that the hunting groups are just standing on the sidelines. They're not doing a damn thing about this. Uh, we know that the Safari Club promotes these places and allows animals into their record books. They have different grand slams and, and hunting achievement awards where they allow animals shot in fenced areas to be included as part of the, uh, the kills to then win the awards. And the NRA, you know, considers this a, a right, and, and they, they fight against this. Where's the leadership in the hunting community? You know, Ted Williams, as, a, as you know, one of the most decorated outdoor writers in the country, has written about it, and a few others have. But where are the organizations? I mean, they're just silent. They should be pushing bills in state legislatures. And the, the Montana effort on the, on the ballot initiative there 20 years ago, two decades ago, was the last major offensive, I think, legislatively, you know, by the by the hunting community. I mean, I'm just, I'm really disappointed at the lack of leadership in the hunting community on this issue. Ted, final thoughts uh, uh, from you, sir, on this this alarming and um, very unhappy topic. Yeah, you know, I think Wayne got it right. Uh, I'd like to see the hunting community be more active. Uh, they're, they're reticent. Uh, they're a little intimidated. The, the Game farm lobby is huge and powerful, but uh, you know the, the hunting community needs to stand up and and do the right thing, stand tall. Marty, any any final thoughts from you? Yeah, just thank you, Ted, for being here again today. I know my friends who are all avid hunters really appreciate the great work that you do and your voice out there, and we need more people like you, and and hope that more will step forward and really speak out against these terrible practices that are occurring. In our country. And, and last word to you, Wayne. Yeah, I, I mean, hunters and animal advocates, you know, are, are at odds on some issues. There's no question about that. There are some elements of the value systems that are in conflict. But with hunters who are adhering to the codes that have been established in wildlife management for decades, we share a tremendous amount in common in terms of wanting to protect habitat, uh, save species, 
stop unethical killings, stop poaching, stop killing the rarest animals. I mean, here is one example where we should be uniting with animal advocates and responsible hunters. It's just those responsible hunters don't have many organizations through which that voice speaks. And I, I don't know if it's just the lack of leadership or as Ted said, it's intimidation, but I hope that this podcast is a call to them to get active and get involved and to amplify their voice in this debate. This is a looming threat from so many perspectives, from animal health, public health, wildlife management, loss of sporting ethics, humane treatment. It's a disgrace and it really should end. And, and Joe, I'm glad you convened us today for the call. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.